0: And a warm welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. It is time for Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk. Always one of my favorite times of the week. If you have a question, we do our very best to answer it. You can text your question over right now. What is your question for the power panel? 877-933-2484. When I say power panel, what I mean is... They know where their power comes from. I have Pastor Tom Parrish and Pastor Aaron Broughton today on the program. And as we are trying to do some technology here, we're getting ready to uh, get everybody all plug- plugged in. All right. I don't know if... You... Tom, welcome. Welcome. <laughs> It is good to be here. Thank you. Always so good. And Aaron, welcome as well. For the- hey, it's great to be here. Thank you. Aaron is a uh, senior pastor, and he is at Victory Baptist Church in Maple Grove, Minnesota. Always nice to have uh, another local hometown guy right here in the studio with us. His life. His life verse is First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Tell us about that. Uh, really having a, a work. Sorry about that. Anyways,
1: that's why it's live radio. Good to, have, uh, good to be here. Thank and, you. Uh, anyways, really having uh, a work that's uh, need not to be ashamed, rightly divided by the word of truth from Timothy, but really having this idea of being steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. So just pressing on. My goal is to really to simply be faithful as a husband, as a father, as a man, as guys. I love it. Simply be faithful to the Lord, what he's called us to do.
0: Yeah. Amen. We already like him, don't we, Tom? You know, already. Yep. Yeah. Fits right yeah. in. Uh, Aaron, tell us a little bit about your your faith journey, your story, how you came to know uh, Jesus, and some of your your ministry life. Well, first of all, I'll just say all honor and glory to God. Um, I was born
1: in Brainerd, Minnesota, and uh, lived there actually most of my years, went to high school there. But as a young child, uh, my parents actually helped out at a local Bible camp up there. And one summer, I remember the pastor of the camp Preaching a simple message on salvation, and I understood that I was a sinner and needed a Savior, and only Jesus could take care of my sins. And so as a young child, I went forward. I trusted Jesus there at at that little chapel uh, up there at Solid Rock Bible Camp was the name, but no longer in existence now. But uh, anyways, God just did a a great work in my life. And even as a a young child, I knew that God really wanted me more than just a kid, you know, even growing up. uh, I think there's a lot of dreams. What do you want to be when you grow up type of thing? But I just want to serve serve the Lord, and so I I really surrendered even then to missions and wherever the Lord would place me, uh, whatever people group I, I would go and simply do that. So uh, so did that as a young child. Called to preach when I was thirteen. Called to missions when I was fifteen. And our family had the privilege of serving in Israel actually for several years and uh, working in Jewish ministry. And now kind of continuing that, but also pastoring here back
0: in Minnesota. Wow. So you spent how many years in Israel? Uh, over six years. Okay. Yep. And tell me a little bit about that experience.
1: Yeah, so and actually it kind of goes before my wife. Um, we've been married over 20 years now. And uh, anyways, her family actually moved there right after the Gulf War in 91. And uh, she ended up going to a little international school over there in Jaffa. If you remember Jonah and the whale, uh, that, that wonderful city. Anyways, yeah. uh, she went to school there. And uh, so she graduated never thinking that she'd get married and move back. So, wow. <laughs> so I did my, so I did my internship. Actually, um, with my future in laws, didn't know it at the time, but the Lord just worked those details out. And the Lord called uh, me, and then later met her, and went to Israel. So we missed her there about six years, and there we worked in a little church plant in Tel Aviv, and uh, God did amazing things that work. It was an international work, reaching both Jew and Gentile for the Messiah. And then we also ran a nonprofit organization called Project Nehemiah. Both ministries are still in existence, doing really? great, run by Israelis. And um, so, yeah, that was our time there and just lived pretty much in the Tel Aviv uh, metro. But uh, what a, a blessing it was to be there in the land. And, you know, you're driving down the street, major roads, and then, you know, you got Tel Aviv, which was started in 1909. And then you got Jaffa, which was like 4,000-year-old city, mm-hmm. side by side, and just amazing just living there and being there in the land
0: where, of the Lord. Yeah. All right, Tom, I don't know if you're thinking what I'm thinking, but I've heard him say Jaffa twice now. And yep. I always thought it was Joppa. <laughs> <laughs> so is it J- Jaffa? Yes. It's, it's both. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> I always thought that he, he got on the boat and went to Joppa. But it's Jaffa, right? Is J- it's just the
1: pronunciation. Okay. You know, um, you know, people reading their Bible, you have a you know a name people are familiar with, like Joppa. Yeah. You're not wrong. Uh, but on the street, you know, if you're in Israel t- today, you, you know, you, f- you hear the pronunciation just a little bit different. So Jaffa is actually in Hebrew. It's uh, from Yaffe, which means beautiful, but, uh, there is a street called Yephet. Yafeh Yefet, Yefay, Yefet. Uh-huh. And actually that is the Hebrew name for Japheth. If you remember Japheth in the Bible, who yeah. was one of the sons of Noah. right? And so that's kind of how it got its name. But Jaffa, Yaffe, beautiful. It's a beautiful little port city. Yeah. It has the oldest port in the world. And, uh. If you go there today, and I challenge everyone to get to Israel, it's, it'll change your life. But if you get there, you'll actually see um, there's a public fountain there, and it's a whale. So they caught the whale that Jonah uh,
2: – <laughs> Whoa, didn't know that. They
1: caught the whale, and now yeah, it's a public fountain. and It is just down the hill from the school where my wife went. Put it there.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I always thought it was just a big fish.
2: Yeah, me too, but yeah. now
0: we know. Now we know. They've got it immortalized in, in in the town of Jaffa you know I do love p- proper pronunciations I, I sometimes I'll be talking about someone and i'll and, and i'll I'll be corrected in a nice gentle way but the the, uh, the Hebrew pronunciation will be very different, and I will realize that I would prefer saying it the the proper Hebrew pronunciation way very good
1: I think a classic one would be uh we see Beersheba in the Bible too yeah. from you know from Dan to Beersheba. In Israel, they just simply call it Beersheba, which is kind of a different tra- uh, different way of saying
0: it, yeah. but same place. So, some people might say Hagar, and you would say... Hagar. Hagar, right. Um, so, yeah, it's probably really good to to get those pronunciations correct. Yeah. And, and, and it's fun. It's fun to say Hagar. It doesn't roll off the tongue like Hagar does, but... I'd like to ask correct. Aaron a
2: question about that. Is there any difference, like, from the north, Lebanon area and up there, to the south... We have differences in accents here in the United States. So some of the same words are said, but a little bit differently. Did you see any of that in Israel?
1: Oh, my. That's a, Tom, I tell you what, that's a great question. I absolutely love that. Well, I'll ask good questions too. <laughs> just so you know, it's not just going to be Tom that's going to ask good questions. No. Well, I, I tell you what, questions from our listeners, it'll all be good today. Okay, good. Anyway, um, you know, Israel, just talk about the land itself. It's, um, it's about the size of the state of New Jersey, or put in layman's terms, Israel's about. Uh, is actually can, can fit inside Lake Michigan and still have room to water ski around it, you know, as far as land size goes. But in and also within the land itself, you go like from Dandebir Shevar all the way down to lot by the Red Sea. It's very diverse in its climate. You know, you have the mountains, snow capped mountains out Mount Hermon near Lebanon, Syria. And then you go like to Jerusalem, you have the Judean Hills. You go down to the Dead Sea, the lowest spot on earth, all the way to the Arava Valley down to the Red Sea and so you're out in desert think of the wilderness a scene where the children of Israel wandered you know for those years and uh, so the climate's different so as far as the people who live there today you know Jewish people have you know since 1948 75 years ago Israel became reborn as a nation and so Jewish immigrants have poured in since that time especially there was always Jewish people that lived in the land throughout the centuries that never stopped but Since 1948, Jewish people have come in by the droves. For example, in the 90s, you had one million immigrants that came just from the former Soviet Union. And then you throw in people from America, from Australia, Jewish people from India, all kinds of places. And so they bring a little bit of their dialect, a way of speak. So you can kind of pick up when you're there enough. There's a little bit of a little dialect from those who live, let's say, near the Galilee than someone who lives, let's say, in Tel Aviv. Wow.
0: So in Genesis 16 too, when you you start reading that, you, and I probably said uh, Sarai a long time. That's not correct either, is it?
1: Close enough, Sarai. Yeah. Sarai. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It should yeah. be Sarai. So there's a lot a lot to learn when you just study the original Hebrew names and learn how to pronounce them. Well, it's worth doing. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Aaron Broughton is my guest along with Tom Parrish. That is the power panel today. All you have to do is text over a question eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four again eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. All right, here's a question, gentlemen: What is the unforgivable sin, and can we still commit it?
2: It's been in controversy for a long time. What is the unforgivable sin? And everybody has a little different nuance on it. Basically, as I read the scriptures and I look very closely. It is the Holy Spirit that brings faith into our life. It is the Holy Spirit that wakes us up to the power of Jesus. I believe the Holy Spirit does that more than one time for people. I mean, many people at time, times are confronted by the Spirit. I think when you go to the end of your life and refuse the Spirit's witness about Jesus and refuse Him, it's. I hear people today always saying, "Well, Pastor, don't you think that at the very end, God will give them one more chance? And my attitude is, if he's given them all the chances up till now with the name of Jesus now why do we think that after they die they're going to get another chance? the Bible doesn't say that so for me, the unforgivable sin is refusing to submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior it may be more than that Aaron
1: I mean yeah that's spot on I think um I think something else in the passage that's referring to the unforgivable or unpardonable sin it really has it's tied in with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit yes. And what happened was this, that it's, you know, Jesus is doing these works and the religious leaders, they're pointing their fingers at him saying, you're really doing it, you know, under Satan's power. Yeah, you're in cahoots with the devil. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, that was totally against. So it was kind of a, the thing is, Jesus is physically not here doing that. So someone cannot commit that specific thing because Jesus is not present doing those miracles. right? And so, but it was very evident, Jesus was doing the power of the spirit. I think it. I think, you know, looking at John 1, um, he came unto his own, his own received him not. And uh, thank God for the Spirit who does draw people to himself, and those who come, you know, as many as received to them, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God, or the authority to, even to them that believe on his name. Yes. And so there's, I think there's hope.
2: There's, I believe there's always hope to the very end. I, You know, the Lord, the, in Second Timothy, he says, it is the Lord's will that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as a parent, uh, I have three sons. They're all believers, thank the Lord. But if they weren't, uh, I wouldn't give up on them until their last breath. I would be there even at the last breath if I could be, trying to persuade them to give their heart to Jesus. Mm -hmm. If I do that as a human being, what does Jesus do for us? He's there.
0: Yeah. Hebrews 9.27, we know that. People are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. So it sounds like the time to come to faith and to place your faith in Jesus is before you take that last breath. Exactly. And that's why,
2: as as Bill knows, I did at a funeral for a nephew a couple of weeks ago. If you're a pastor or you're a chaplain and you trust in Jesus, never give up the opportunity to do a funeral. I don't care who it is. It can be a biker. I've done those before. <laughs> I've done uh, everything down the line because that's when people, Bill, are asking the right questions. Why am I here? What's my life about? What happens when I die? And I've learned I go after those questions biblically and try to answer those and talk about the life of the person. My nephew had been on drugs. He had been in all kinds of trouble, had multiple kids. But 12 years ago, he met Jesus, changed his life completely, and he became a different person. And so it was fun to be able to share how Tony had come to faith in the Lord and how Jesus wants all the listeners to come to faith as well because he was there for Tony at the very last moment to take him in the kingdom of God. And so, uh, and the fun part is, I had a number of Jewish people at that funeral who wouldn't let me out of the room after we were done. Nice. They wanted to talk to me about, they said, We've never heard anything like this. We want to know about this Jesus there at the last moment tell us more. And
0: so we had a nice conversation. I like it. It is time for Guy Talk or guys who talk. Let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. There's already some great questions coming in. I've got Pastor Tom Parrish and Pastor Aaron Broughton today here with me. That is my power panel. We'll be right back. When you sponsor a child in need, you change their life. Your child learns that God loves them more than they can imagine and that he has special plans for their life. Your child gets help with school and is taught leadership, life skills, and how to overcome poverty and succeed. Your child gets nutritious food and vital medical care that often saves lives. You might not be able to change the world, but for one child, you can change theirs. Meet the kids, find your child at myfaithradio.com. Welcome to Guide Talk. It is time for your questions. Let me know. What do you have? I know you got something. 877-933-2484. One more time, 877-933-2484. My power panel today is Tom Parrish and Aaron Broughton. Really glad to have us here around the table looking at at what scripture teaches, Bibles are open. We are ready for your questions. All right, here's a, a thought that came in from Michael. I've heard very compelling arguments for a mid-trib rapture. The first being that Christ is only coming back once. For the pre-trib, they argue that they have to come the pre-trib argues you have he'd have to come twice. The second is that we will have to live through some of the evil. That we're already seeing, yet still, yet will still avoid the judgments. Aaron, let's start with you. Okay. <laughs>
1: Eschatology, you know, it's a doctrine of things to come. I think yep. one thing that, you know, as believers in, in Jesus Christ, that we should not be looking for the Antichrist. We should be looking for Jesus Christ. I think of start starting with that premise. And so Jesus did give a promise that he would return he would come again so you know there's a doctrine of the imminency the imminent return of Christ so the question is really fundamental is Jesus coming at all yeah starting there and the bible ends in revelation with the promise behold i come quickly and even so come lord jesus where I, I can't wait till the lord returns i mean just to make the wrong things right seeing you know the promise of eden everything yes. ev- everything's been broken because of sin i can't wait till every everything gets restored and Jesus Christ rules supreme over all creation, over all people. So I think that's, that's the big picture that we have to look. So, you know, when it comes to the minute details on the timing, I think that's what we're talking about is is the timing of Jesus' return. So I think you, starting there with the imminency is Jesus even coming back and then kind of the purpose. So I think if you – one, I like one thought maybe – I know Tom just kind of bouncing this off too. Sure. is Looking kind of at revelation i think a lot of people go to that or matthew 24 for example but kind of looking at revelation backwards you know starting with the imminent return and then you have this period of rain a thousand years and then you do have a tribulational time Mm -hmm. and then i think when you look at that maybe the rapture itself kind of works itself out is is there a rapture for example i think some people and and i've um, personally, where I stand, I, I, I view it as a pre-tribulational rapture, that we are saved from the wrath to come. But some people say, well, you're just trying to get out of a hard time that's to come. You know, you're afraid of that. And I don't think that's the case because Christianity, Christians have experienced persecution through the years. In the past 100 years, it's just been uh, horrific for some believers in different parts of the world. And I praise God in the United States, we still have freedom to worship and to believe and to practice our faith And so, um, but in looking at, one thing I always go to is this. Um, I look at the promise of the Lord's return, similar to John 14, which is involving Jewish wedding customs. Mm -hmm. And um, ironically, that's how I proposed to my wife, actually. Really? Side story, yeah. So, make it really quick what that is. So, back in the first century, the way that a bridegroom would propose to his wife, they would... Um, he would sign – have a marriage contract called a ketubah. It's a contract, a covenant, and so he would make that and present that before the family, and they would drink upon it. Then he would pour a cup of wine or juice or whatever, put it, that cup in front of his bride-to-be, and if she drank it, she says yes. She put to the side. She says no. Mm. For the sake of the story, she drinks the cup. All right, now there's a wedding to, to do. What does the bridegroom do now? This has happened 2,000 years ago. He says, "I go then to prepare a place for you." He leaves the house. He starts building a little mansion, a honeymoon cottage onto his father's house. <laughs> and I'll, I tell mm-hmm. you what, and the the wedding wouldn't happen until the that building was complete. Here's the thing, though. When if it was, he was like most guys. I don't know about you guys, but I would throw up a simple shack and go get the girl. <laughs> <laughs> throw a tarp over something and go you know, uh, go get her. Exactly, but you know it's it's an important. So what was the common denominator in it? It was the father of the bridegroom who gave the okay of when it's completed. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's building on the house. You've got to make it look good. So that's when that event would happen. And so he would then go out in the streets, middle of the night, and then they would uh, shout, blow the shofar, shout, the bridegroom's coming, go out to meet him, and they would bring him. Actually, he would stop halfway between his house and her house. His best men would come and usher him, usher her to him, and then they would go to honeymoon cottage. So, oh. so it's a beautiful picture of that. And so I think going to the timing now of that, I think it makes sense that um in in a, in that symbolic way that this is a a tribulational type of rapture if you use that analogy to that can we bank everything on it i don't know about that we'll know when the lord comes yeah but i think there is a, a great promise to that
0: yeah when when we find out that the lord's going to pour out his wrath in a way that's never been experienced yeah that's not the evil world that we're living in right now there's something much worse coming oh of course yeah yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. i i think one thing is just the people on earth, the earth dwellers, they will notice that this is not your normal catastrophes. And they're going to shake their fist against God. They will know it's from him. So mm-hmm. I think that would be the difference at that time.
0: All right. Thank you, Aaron Broughton. Next question up, gentlemen. Can you please talk about Hebrews 5.8? Although he was a son, he learned obedience through suffering. I'm trying to understand how the perfect son of God who knew no sin learned obedience.
2: Well, that's a great question. and. I believe in combining scripture passages to make sense out of it. I'm always in context. Don't get me wrong. I would never pull it out. But I think Philippians 2 has to be added right to this text at the same time. That says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of a man. Jesus intentionally gave up his power and became truly human. Not that he wasn't still God. Of course he was. He was the God-man. But he gave up that power and depended totally on the Father. And in that, depending on the Father, he had to learn to walk with the Father as we all should do. Jesus did it perfectly. And then, of course, when he rose from the dead, you know, new body, he was fully restored, glorified body. He is forever, you know, truly God and man in the biblical sense. But the bottom line is, uh, when he walked the earth, he had the power. He could have used it, but he chose not to. And he chose to follow the Father. So he learned obedience, or as I was looking at the Greek here, he walked in obedience. He, he understood that following the Father's will was the key to the whole thing. And quite frankly, for you and I, it's the same message today. We can have the best theology in the world, but if we're not walking in obedience, and what I mean by that is loving Jesus, doing what he commanded us to do, letting his priorities be our priorities, his worldview our worldview, then we miss the boat. Jesus did not. He knew exactly what he was doing.
0: Nicely done, Tom Parrish. Any additional thoughts, Aaron? I think looking at the verse before, uh,
1: Hebrews 5, 7, uh, talks about that. He had these, um, in the days of his flesh, he offered a prayer supplication with tears. And a lot of people believe that's referring to the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus is pouring out. So, and the fact that Jesus learned obedience, walked in that obedience, that's great. I love that. And it's, one thing that's interesting is that Jesus experienced um, everything that you and I experienced. He was God, very God, man, very man. And so we can definitely I, identify with Christ in, in that regards. And mm-hmm. in
0: fact, he identifies with us. Yeah, I have a question about that after the break. Uh, it's about, you know, the high priest who experienced everything, right? I want to mm-hmm. talk about that as well. In addition to that, a lot of great questions. I got a question from Vicki. We're going to deal with that when we come back from the break. Gary's got a question. Nancy's got a question. There's some great questions coming, and we're going to get to uh, as many, uh, hopefully all of them. But we want to hear yours as well, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Of course, you can remain anonymous. I'm not saying anybody's uh, last names, of course, but I I just send it over, 877-933-2484. I'll be right back with my panel today, which is Tom Parrish and Aaron Broughton. Be right back. Get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Yeah. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Welcome, welcome. If you just joined us, it's time for Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Tom Parrish, Aaron Broughton. That's my power panel today. Great questions coming in. Keep them coming. 877-933-2484. Passage in Hebrews 4, just to follow up, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to, to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, that's profound on so many levels. It's mind-blowing it's, as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus did not
2: play God in the sense of he didn't do these things. He was really tempted as a human being, and yet he walked in obedience and it's so incredible to see that, and what it says to the Christian now is this, that since we have the Holy Spirit living within us, the power is already there to resist temptation and sin. We simply have to choose to give in to the Holy Spirit rather than give in to the temptation, where people that don't have the Spirit many times don't have a lot of choice. Mm-hmm. They get caught up in it, and it just kind of takes them over. So, yeah, I love that passage. It's powerful, and hang that on your wall. You should see that every day.
1: Yeah. Aaron? What an encouragement that is. I think, you know, when you look at the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, all those temptations, the stone be made bread, you know, cast yourself off, things like that. It's interesting that all those, you know, Jesus quoted using scripture as a way, you know, maybe talking about temptation, how do you deal with temptation? I think that's where knowing scripture comes in. But Jesus, it's interesting. In those passages back in Deuteronomy where Jesus is giving those rebuttals to Satan, the children of Israel, they actually broke every one of those things. (laughs) You know, they complained about yep. the bread, for example. Um, and so Jesus is the one who is who right, was righteous over that. He is that second Adam. And the fact that Jesus conquered sin in that way gives us encouragement to press on in with the Holy Spirit. I agree, yes. Sin is a choice for the believer. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and what's scary is that with the modern age, with the computers, the technology, the media, the iPhones, I hope we're not getting lazy about memorizing Scripture. Because there's a big difference between the Scripture being on my iPad or in my Bible, and I can go read it. But when I'm in the car and I get tempted or something comes to mind, it's not easy to pull that up. But if it's already within me, the Holy Spirit knows how to pull it up right at that moment and confront me, and it's yeah. good stuff.
0: Yeah. Eric, uh, you just talked about uh, Jesus as the second Adam. When people hear that, what, do, how are they to understand that, that Jesus is the second Adam? What does that mean? Well, you go back
1: to creation. I think you know Genesis one through eleven is foundational for the rest of Scripture. I mean, that's really the basis of all Bible doctrine. And by the way, for for us and for listeners, doctrine is sometimes a scary word. It just simply means teaching. It's what you know what the Bible is based on. And so the idea of God creates Adam and Eve, who was perfect. Talk about the perfect couple, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. But they broke God's law by taking of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the thing is this, that God promised them, Genesis 3.15, that one day the serpent's head is going to be crushed. And who's going to do that? It's going to be that promised redeemer who will be that second Adam. Whereas the first Adam failed, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, he will succeed. He will be triumphant.
0: And because he was triumphant, we are triumphant in him. We are victorious in him. So Jesus is called the second Adam because he will finish the job that the first one failed at. Absolutely. All right. Any other thoughts to that, Tom Parrish?
2: No, that fits very well. The only thing I would add is that about doctrine, because I hear people say, I don't like church doctrine, so I like what you said. I often talk about church doctrines is nothing more than biblical truth. Mm-hmm. All we've tried to do is extrapolate from Scripture the truth and systematize it in the sense that we understand what it's saying and put it to work. So, doctrine is not a bad word. I think the misuse of it is bad, but... I don't use the term doctrine much anymore. When I preach or teach, I use biblical truth. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of hard to argue with.
0: All right. Uh, gentlemen, why is there so many different versions of the Bible? And is there a version to stay away from?
2: There are many versions of the Bible, and it has to do with a variety of things. So, first of all, language changes. Even within a given culture, language changes. I mean, in the United States, we still have people in various parts of the United States that are not speaking English as we understand it. And so they're going to need their own translation for that. And that's what missionaries have done. But the, all the English ones, we are privileged in the West to have so many translations because archaeology and research keeps finding old manuscripts or finds what was what has been written or they were uncovering something they've had for a long time, but now it, it suddenly fits and they can add things to it. For me, the one that, that always has blown me away is Jude, uh, verse five. Jude verse five, because in every translation I've looked at, it says, Jude is saying, now you remember how the Lord brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. The ESB, and they explain it in there, um, actually went to and pulled from third century manuscripts. And in the third century manuscript, it says, as you well know, it was Jesus. It was Jesus who rescued the children out of Israel. Now, that's a whole different understanding when you read it that way. Whoa, whoa, what? You're saying Jesus was back there during the Exodus and dealt with that and was there confronting Pharaoh? Judas, that brother, says, yeah, that's what he was doing, and that's what the early manuscripts show. So we are pr- privileged to do that. That's why I always encourage to read several different ones. There are some that are not as good. I don't like... Uh, the paraphrases that are out there, they get a little too loose. I like the word-for-word word or the thought-for-thought, thought, which many of them are, and uh, I would encourage that. Aaron, maybe you have a
1: addition to that. I think ultimately we're looking at you know the original languages, talking about uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Yep. That's where it originally came from. Um, but I think, to your point, we have an, an embarrassment of riches. Oh, we do. Especially here in the United States and the English-speaking world. Um, and there's a lot of countries, a lot of people groups that they don't even have one verse of Scripture, let alone a whole book or the whole Bible. And so I think what we are looking for is have have a Bible that is faithful to the text, that is faithfully translated, uh, not one that has a lot of extra bias, right. things like that. Um, there are a few translations out there I would definitely avoid. Some of the paraphrases, yeah, they, you, you kind of really miss what the author author's intent is of that. Um, I think the Passion Translation would kind of fall into that. That regard has a little bit of a bias on kind of the teaching. We want you to read it this way, and that's not really what Paul, for example, is right. talking about. And so you've got to be careful in that. And so I would say you know, to our listeners out there, if you got a question about it, go talk to your pastor or maybe a respected Bible teacher. Um, get some good wisdom in, in doing that. Mm-hmm. I was
2: really humbled uh, when I started working at Trinity of May, ha, ha Falls, big mission church. Sent missionaries all over the world. Help start what's called World of Mission Prayer League, a whole variety of things. And one of the missionaries is telling me a true story, and I've seen it written now, that back in the 40s when they were doing Bible translations for people for the first time in a culture, they had taken a bunch of Bibles into a, a tribal area and distributed among the people. And if they had passed out the last Bible, they were packing up to leave, and a guy came running over the hill. And he, he said, I'm, I'm here for the Bible translation. He said, I'm sorry we've given them all away. And he pulled out, he had one page of the Bible, I think it was from Matthew, and he said, I've read this over and over and over, I wanted to see what was on the next page. Mm. Whoa.
0: That's pretty cool.
2: That just blew me away. And so we are richly blessed, and uh, it's great to have these different translations.
0: But of course, the original manuscripts are the inerrant word of God, right? But there's been translators ever since. And is there any chance from when King James was translated in what, the 16th century? Have we in 1611, yeah. have, we, have we learned more about the Greek language in the last 400 years? Absolutely. Might we have oh, a yeah. greater understanding? Than oh, yeah. Th- those translators had, have have haven't every translator had their own issues.
2: Well, here's the amazing part. If you look at all the different translations, except for ones like Aaron pointed out that are problematic because they're coming in with a bias. They've got their own agenda. If you look at all the different translations, it is incredible how close they are to one another. They may use slightly different words, but they're still the same word if you go in and, and search it deep enough. It, it To me, I'm amazed at how you can take the ESB, the NIV, uh, a lot of the other ones, uh, the, like the New King James Version and others, and most people, if they didn't know which version it was, wouldn't really know what they're reading because it all sounds familiar because it's exactly what most of us grew up with. And it's very accurate. And so I think whatever you have in a good translation, um, you can rest assured. It's pretty accurate to what it's saying. And the manuscripts they're uncovering now, the little bit of work they're doing and coming, they still agree with what's there. There's nothing new in the sense that
0: we didn't know that fully before. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Uh, This question pops up from time to time, and I, I always think it's worth addressing because I believe for many people, including myself, I need to hear teaching eight or ten times before it sticks to my thick skull. I need to preach eight to ten times before <laughs> I get it. And it's uh, Matthew eighteen eighteen. 18. What does it mean? Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven.
2: Well, verse 1. 15 starts talking about if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. So the context, at least in this part of it, is dealing with with sin and uh, about how to deal with that. If we refuse to listen, tell the church. Verse 18, you know, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I don't think most Christians today have any understanding of the authority we've been given. That when somebody comes to you and and says, Bill, I've sinned against you and I've sinned against the Lord— you know, I, I'm going to ask your forgiveness, and I hope the Lord forgives me. Not only can you say, well, friend, I forgive you for Jesus' sake, and from his word, I can assure you, you are forgiven by the Lord since you've confessed it to him. On the other hand, people that hold bitterness and refuse to repent, there is a place at times for saying to them, especially when they, they get into it with other family members or they hurt other people with what they say, mm-hmm. you say to them, you know, so long as you continue behaving that way you have not been forgiven and you're still carrying your sins and you will pay a price for that unless you come to repentance so we don't exercise that authority we think that's only for pastors but it is for the whole body of christ and i think christians need to be taught how to use that every day
1: in a good way yeah this is this passage here uh, matthew 18 really deals again with the scope of uh, discipline more so in the church and so you know the immediate context jesus is sharing this with his disciples talking about Peter, Andrew, James, John, those those people that we know. And so in talking about that, the actions that they're taking, talking about, you know, where verse 20 says, you know, where two or three are gathered in my name, uh, there I, I'm in the midst of them. And so a lot of, we use that usually for fellowship or, you know, when we have a down Sunday, I don't know about you, but, you know, we're, man, there's two or three, we're here, we're, you know, the Lord's with us. But the context here is about church discipline. <laughs> and so um, for, hopefully we don't have to do church discipline every Sunday, though, you know. But uh, it's like really the authority, exactly the authority that God gave them or Jesus gave them, it's as good as it is in heaven. So it's it's very, very touching to see how this works in God's plan.
2: I had a very liberal professor when I went to the seminary. There are a lot of conservatives. He was the one liberal. And, of course, he was the one who always wanted to talk to me because he thought I was a little too conservative and a little too fundamentalist and that type of thing. And the last time I talked to him, he said, I know what you're saying is probably true. But be happy if anybody ever listens to what you have to say. So
0: I'm happy if there's two or
2: three or two or three thousand. Right. It doesn't matter. Right.
0: You're coming to hear it. I'm going to preach it. Good attitude, Tom Parrish. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back. Lots more guy talk. Let me know what you have in terms of a question. I know you got one. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. Send the question over. We'll get to it. Be right back. Hi, this is Bill Arnold, host of The Afternoon Show. If you're like me, and I know I am, you're going to get tired on occasion. Sometimes you're emotionally tired, sometimes you're spiritually tired. And if you're struggling or you've had disappointment, I want you to know that uh, Susie Larson has written a brand new book uh, to take you on a journey to explore God's invitation to flourish and to heal and to know peace that will hopefully change your life forever. Text the word GOOD to 877 933 2484, and Susie will wake you up to the goodness of God. Connecting Faith to Life, Faith Radio. It is time for Guy Talk. We love Guy Talk. Let me know what you have as a question. 877 933 2484. If you just climbed in your car, hope you had a good day at work or whatever you were doing today. Maybe you were at an appointment or you were with friends and now you're just heading back to your home or apartment or wherever you live or wherever you're headed to tonight and you've tuned into Faith Radio. Who are these guys talking? Well, I'll tell you that's Tom Parrish and Aaron Broughton. They're my two guests today on Guy Talk, and they're gonna do their very best to answer whatever questions you have. So, gentlemen, here's a question, Matthew eighteen seventeen. What does it mean? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What is Jesus saying here, and how are we to treat them? Aaron, we chatted about this in the green room, so you go first. All right. This is a great
1: uh, great discussion. It's, I think it's, first of all, I challenge folks, you know, read the Bible. Read the Bible. When you come to this, though, what is the context? So this is talking about church discipline. We kind of, before the break, we kind of talked a little bit about that, but Jesus is talking a little bit here about uh, about the lost sheep, for example. So this t- is in regards to church discipline. The goal of church discipline is ultimately restoration. Right. You're not trying to just kick someone out forever. Hopefully, you know, you talk through that, talk through things. If, if it gets to be a point, you bring it before the church, for example. But ultimately, it's for that. So in verse 17, let this man be as a Gentile tax collector. It's like this. if, if, And kind of before that, it says if the person you're talking to – Even before witnesses, and if that person still refuses to to hear it, to hear what you're telling them, they still – whatever sin maybe that they're involved in or stubbornness, bitterness, whatever it may be, if they refuse that uh, or if he refused to go to the church, then that person should be treated as a Gentile or a tax collector. So what does that mean? It basically means to treat these people in Jesus' day, the Gentiles and tax collectors, they were not allowed into common society they weren't invited over to someone's wedding, for example, or synagogue services, or even the temple. There are certain areas of the temple they couldn't go to, and so that they would be on the outside looking in. And so, if someone gets to that point where they like they're just living for themselves, maybe in sin, habitual sin, refuse to repent, refuse to to uh, turn to the Lord uh, or listen to the te- uh, to the teachers, there is basically you treat them like that. Hey, guys, you know you're not you're not allowed here right now. And again, you're not kicking him out for good. The idea is like, hey, wake up, come back.
0: Yeah. is the idea. So uh, Jewish people would just keep their interaction with Gentiles and tax collectors to a, a minimum. Kind of as necessary. Yes, but yep. Jesus accepted the Gentiles and tax collectors, and an unrepentant believer who had gone through this procedure, uh, if they kept being unrepentant, they would be not accepted back into the church. But the goal would be redemption, right? Absolutely. Okay. Yep. Did I, did I, did I have that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. I like when I get stuff right. Doesn't happen that often. We do too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's a question, gentlemen Duh, Does baptism give one automatic assurance of going to heaven? I'm a Lutheran. I grew up with this. Okay.
2: Many Lutherans want to say yes, I say no baptism is a covenant. It's no different. Now, of course, in Lutheranism, we just don't do believer's baptism. We baptize kids. But like the Jews circumcised on the eighth day, no Jewish male on the eighth day said, I want to be circumcised to be part of the covenant. It just simply happened. The point is the prophets held them accountable to the covenant when they grew up. We have failed to do so much of that because we have given people the impression that all you need to do is be baptized, but we haven't done a lot talking to them about surrendering to Jesus, walking with him the rest of their life, serving him and doing his will. And so when I do baptisms, and I've done adult baptism, teenagers, uh, younger people, what I emphasize there is, this is a covenant that Jesus is making, and in this covenant, he's calling you to become his lifelong disciple. And that is our goal. To make you a lifelong disciple. And that is the parents' goal, the sponsor's goal, everybody else around. You never get the idea that just being baptized gets you in if you never come to church, or you never do anything again. That is not the right biblical understanding. That is not what a covenant's about. And we have uh, often failed on that in Christianity, especially among, you know, Lutherans.
1: I guess speak for a Baptist. Actually, it's interesting. I was actually born Lutheran. My parents were free Lutheran. So I got baptized as a baby. Have no recollection of it right i have a i actually have a picture of of that event that happened do you really i do yeah back Ah. in the stone age i guess when it happened were you crying in the picture i i i was being held and i i was I guess I had that angelic look at the time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all
2: right. Yeah. I saw a picture the other day where the pastor was holding a baby by the feet and dunking the head uh, in the water. That was that,
0: that yours?
1: No, uh, no, that was the other guy. Uh, so, okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyways, you know, for uh, for my um, for our church, you know, as we're Baptists as well, so we believe in be- believers sure. baptism. So if you look at that pattern, for example, in the Book of Acts, you see the gospel presented, people receive the word, and then we're we're baptized. So it, you know, it's for believers, but. But to your point, Tom, I will definitely agree with you on this: is that even within Baptist circles or whatever denomination, if, whenever you do baptism, they think, "Yeah, we're good to go. I don't have to worry about anything." And you know, they forget. Wait, wait a minute. There's a sanctified life. I know. And, and so, uh, Christ wants us to to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So uh, that w- that would be a huge emphasis. No, no, Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior. Baptism is a public sign of your faith in Him. Uh, definitely, and then you know, walk with the Lord. You know, we don't just, you know, stop. You know, in our, our, you know, you can imagine just having a baby born and here's a bottle. Good luck. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. See, I get people
2: that will say to me, "Well, I was baptized on October 5th, 1985," and I say, "Great, glad you were baptized. Where do you stand with Jesus today?" Because the issue is, we were called to walk with Him every day. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about a salvation issue. I'm talking about are you a fruitful disciple? Are you doing what you've been called to do? And too often, Christians don't do, I believe, what they've been called to do, and they don't understand because people like me, pastors, have not taught them well to understand that and to
0: give them the tools for doing it. All right, here's a warm fuzzy. Uh, Good afternoon, great team. How nice is that? Is that my wife? No, it's not, actually. Okay. This is really nice. And the question is, is tithing... An obligation for us New Testament Christians today? Is it for us today? Tithing and obligation. I teach no because tithing was the letter of the law. We have
2: emerged beyond the law. The New Testament assumes we'll do more than tithing. And so if you want to give eight, 10%, praise God, do that. But what I do every Sunday when the offering is brought forward or when we take the offering I'd remind the congregation, you're giving for one reason and one reason only Not for my salary, not for this building, not for the the furnace. You're giving out of thankfulness to Jesus. And if we understand it that way, then we, and I've seen people go way beyond tithing. I had a multimillionaire who was proud that he was giving 7% and he wanted my affirmation. And I said, is that all Jesus wants out of you? And he just stopped and he looked at me. And within a year, he was giving 50% of his income to our church. Wow. And that was incredible because we went from a, from a budget of 150,000. I was there to almost $500,000 virtually overnight.
0: Wow.
1: You know, I think the average giving statistic probably is varied, you know, uh, COVID kind of threw a wrench in everything, but yeah. I think the average church goer gives around two to 3%. Yes. Uh, and a tithe by definition means 10th. Uh, and so I would say that's a great place to start. Be wonderful. Yeah. And so I think, to your point, New Testament given would be like grace giving. We do it because of what Jesus has done for us. This is a way to worship him uh, with our lives because ultimately, you know, so Jesus has 10%. No, Jesus has everything.
0: Yep. It's all his. Absolutely. All right. Uh, there will be 12 thrones for the disciples in heaven. There were more than 12 on earth, which 12 will be on the 12 throne- thrones? Well, we, you Aren't know, that we're close to break. Yeah, we we're getting close to break. Yeah, so if you guys can't come up with an answer, we can bail. So that's that's good.
2: Well, I like bailing. I mean, yeah. that's appropriate. Uh,
0: occasionally it is.
2: I, I don't know exactly what, you know, there were 12 apostles. We know that. There were many more disciples, but there were 12 apostles. But the bottom line is it, the Bible continually um, hovers around. I don't want to, that doesn't sound right. It continually moves around these numbers of 3, 7, 12, 40. 500 and there there is a symbolic understanding to those because that's part of the lord's completeness and so 12 thrones yes uh what apostles will set on them well i'm sure peter will be there and a few others i don't know if i could name them all right off the top of my head but they will be there because they represent you know the apostles of the lord just like there were 12 tribes in israel you know you've got the same thing going on
0: all right i got a nice follow-up uh about that baptism question. Sure. I, I, I will enjoy reading. I, I sent in the question about baptism. I am Lutheran and appreciated very much your answers, which I totally agree with. Thank you. It's kind. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Very good. Yeah. All right. Got plenty of guide talks still ahead. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. My panel today is Pastor Tom Parrish and Pastor Aaron Broughton, we are ready to take your questions. Maybe you were in a Bible study in the last month, or you heard something at church that was preached in a sermon, or maybe it was a conversation you had with your youth pastor 40 years ago, and you still haven't had an answer. Uh, we want to at least try to do our very best to answer whatever you have for us, and we are excited to get your questions. We still have uh, plenty of guide talk ahead. We have one more hour after the break, so Send it over, 877-933-2484. And because prayer is an ongoing conversation with God, it does change your life. You can pray always with a sense of expectancy that God will, because God is a God who hears your prayers. And we want to be able to stand alongside and pray with you. So you can call or text your prayer request to 877 933 Or you can visit MyFaithRadio.com. So MyFaithRadio.com. We're going to take a little break, and we've got hour two just ahead. Lots of time for your questions. Again, not to say the number too many times, but it's good to hear it one more time. 877-933-2484. We're back with Guy Talk.